Hello, welcome to the Foreign Press Podcast. I'm Patricia Vasconcelos. This podcast is an educational program by the Association of Foreign Press Correspondents in the USA, AFPC USA. On today's program, an immersion in the professional trajectory of Jair Van Dyke. Pulitzer-nominated journalist, expert on Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Middle East. A former professional athlete, runner, author of several books. Someone who inspired us in many aspects. Jair Van Dyke is our guest today. Jair, thank you so much for being here with us in our Foreign Press podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Patricia. Well, Jer, um, we journalists um, who dedicate ourselves to stories that are far from our home, um, usually we foreign journalists, we spend years living abroad, immersed um, in this universe far from home. I, I assume that we have something that might link um, us and you have this link with this unknown as well, which is, I believe, to seek this unknown, this feeling of exploring the world in a deeper way. And uh, in a recent interview um, that you gave, I'm not sure if you remember what you said, but you did. You said, I've always felt separate from everyone else, although I was always welcomed, uh, whatever I was. So I would like to start with that. Could you describe this feeling of being feeling separate from everyone else and how is this related to your journey do you mean how did that begin in my life or why did i feel that yes you were okay. recalling your childhood when you you were you know a young boy in in right. washington state and you described this feeling of right being i separate. grew up i grew up in a very loving family, a, a good father, a very good mother, a, a brother and sister, and we were very happy. Uh, we were different from others in that we were what is called Plymouth Brethren. Plymouth Brethren are similar to Mennonites, or in some ways, theologically, very similar to the Amish. My father owned a, a small millwork company, and we lived very comfortably, so it's not that we... Uh, drove buggy, <laughs> horse and buggy, or anything like that. Uh -huh. But we were religiously, we were separate from others. And even though we went, my brother and sister and I went to public schools. And I, and this is important for boys in America when I was young. Today, it's important for boys and girls. Girls, it wasn't so important uh, when I was growing up. Was the to play sports, and so because I could play sports. I was accepted by everybody and I was just a normal a normal boy like everybody else. But I always felt separate from everyone because that was what we were taught in our assembly. We didn't use the word church. In our assembly, we were taught that we were separate from the world. And we used a particular verse from Corinthians in the Bible, come out therefore and be ye separate from the world. So that stuck with me. And I found that... Uh, as I went through life, and everybody who's listening to this, everybody on earth, uh, is a bit like cattle in when we were children. You're branded, if you say in in American West. No, you're branded. Well, you when that when they brand you, 
uh, and you feel that brand inside of you, that at five years old or seven years old or 10 years old, that stays with you your entire life, no matter how much you try to disguise it, no matter how far you go away. Uh, and it played a very big role in my life when I began to work in Afghanistan, but that's a little bit down the road. Um, and so even in uh, going to high school and I succeeded as an as a runner and running took me out into the world from my deeply religious environment, which was which was very positive in that we were uh, I grew up in a very out very healthy outdoors, physically active environment in Washington State. Nature, uh, the, nature animals, uh, very right. outside life. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We would go skiing, we would at a sailboat, we would uh my father was an excellent water, uh, excellent um, skater from growing up in the East because it's a lot colder in the East than it is in the West uh, and mountain climbing and that. So we had very physically active and um, healthy life where, where my journalism career was how it was affected by my religious upbringing is twofold. One in the way in which and this went all through life in the way in which I was, I felt separate in whatever part of the world I've worked. I also knew instinctively that, and I'd learned this, and I know that probably everybody listening to this also knows this, that the most important thing is to have trust or to convey trust. And that so someone else you're talking to who doesn't know your language and vice versa, trust you i recall once in in the andes in uh, in south america that i had to i was i had to talk to someone and it went from english to spanish to quechua hmm. and so how did this man know that he was willing to talk to me to open up to me it all comes down to did he trust me did he see it in my eyes was he comfortable with me and I think I developed that instinctively as a boy, uh, being separate from others and feeling separate, but knowing I needed to belong and was comfortable with that. And so that is, an ex I think that's absolutely the most important thing in being a, being a foreign correspondent is the ability to adapt yourself to another environment, of course, to you clearly are, are separate and you cannot try to be something that you're not. You cannot try to be, uh, someone who, you know, an Indian who lives up in the Andes or if you, or uh, whatever it may be, you have to be yourself and therefore you're going to convey trust and he or she is going to trust you because of, because of that. Um, the other part was that as a boy, I grew up in a missionary environment. And so we, I would listen on Sundays to missionaries would come back with snake skins or with bows and arrows from Africa. And I'm 10 years old, right? And so you, oh, that's exciting. That's interesting. Because to go to church is really boring and it's hard and it's it's very, it's very, uh, it's not easy for a child or, you know, a young person who wants to rebel and be out in the world. And so those things, I think, really um, also can also help. And the third part of this is, I grew up in a family of, it was very divided in that part of us, my my mother would, 
aunt and my father were very religious, but my father's brothers and brother and sisters, and particularly my mother's, were not at all. Uh, and so, uh, as a young man, I grew up in a family where I had an uncle. I had an uncle, and his wife would be my aunt, who in my family influenced me more than anybody else. It was my aunt who got in a fight with my grandmother. I didn't know this then, but she got in an argument with my grandmother and dropped out of the University of Washington and took a slow boat to Shanghai. So here's an, here's an 18, 19, 20-year-old young woman in 1931, 32, 33, and what percentage of women went to college in America? 5% maybe at that. Dropped out of college, moved, goes to China, lives in what I will call, lives in sin. With, you know, she met this flyboy, a pilot from, from Kansas. And so I would hear these, these stories about their friendship with uh, famous journalists or what they would say about Chiang Kai-shek or Mao Zedong or... or uh, they met Hemingway, the writer, and all these. And so I had this image of my aunt growing up as a woman with high heels, silk stockings, drinking martinis, and <laughs> listening listening to jazz in China. And so it was the romance of people like that and uncles who fought in wars who would tell me stories that had nothing to do with religion. So growing up in a very international family that... Uh, I had a, this uncle was the the um, managing director of what was called the China National Aviation Corporation, half owned by Pan American Airways, which no longer exists, and half owned by the Chinese government. So mm -hmm. first man to fly over the Himalayas. So you grow up in that environment, which is completely different from a, a religious environment, but it also opened as a boy. It opened up the world to me, and I was not afraid of the outside world. In fact, so I was drawn to it. It was exciting. So you had examples maybe in your DNA as well about searching this 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 type of life. And uh, as far as I know, you had the example of your father. You became a runner inspired by him, if I'm not wrong. But this gave you the opportunity to travel and search other other places in this world in a very young age. By that time, what motivated you to to leave United States and pursue this career as an athlete, as a professional one, a runner? You represented United States. You won competitions. You won scholarships in order to perform abroad as an athlete. You've done research, Patricia. Uh, <laughs> good journalism. Yes, that's true. In fact, today it seems like nothing at all uh, to to people. But I had never been out of the United States except, and in, in, I was twenty. I guess I was twenty, twenty-one. Um, I was. I made the Pan American team, which is uh, so. I was, I think, seventh ranked eight hundred meter runner in the world, and so I got to go on this great trip to Toronto, Canada. And I was, I wanted to go to Brazil or, or some Chile or someplace exotic. Anyway, it was Canada. <laughs> but it was Canada. And I was excited that I got to go to Canada. And there was, the, there was a Russian contingent there also, which was 
was they were not competing, but they were there observing. And what was truly interesting uh, and ex actually exciting was that the Cuban delegation was there. Wow. And Cuba is the enemy, right? And Castro's the enemy. This is the Cold War. And we were not supposed to have anything to do with the Cubans. But a pole vaulter and I, a friend, uh, who later won a gold medal, uh, in, yeah, in next in the next Olympics, uh, we, we 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 sneaked into the, and there was a um, also a runner, a, a black friend of mine. There were three of us, and we sneaked into the Cuban uh, area, and we spent an afternoon with them. And so it was so enlightening. They're just like us. They're nice guys. They're, these women are, look at these women athletes. They're terrific. And we had fun together, you know, broken Spanish, broken English and, and such. And so it was the idea that I, as an American, was seen as the enemy by the government or by, and vice versa. But to us, we were all the same. We were, we were athletes. We were above, if you will, government fighting and so that is true that my first trip was to canada later uh other countries in the world and i remember once on a, a smaller u.s trip to new zealand uh i think there were just about 10 of us to compete against new zealand runners and there uh, i met a playwright from a, a kiwi a new zealander and he off, he gave me the opportunity to write something for the local newspaper. So I, I said, "What's it like being a playwright?" And then we would. I gave speeches in, as in in grade schools and high schools there as visiting athlete. And so that was the first thing I had ever written in my life. Was this man asked me to write five hundred words for a newspaper there, and that was the beginning. Did Later, you enjoy it? Did you enjoy doing it? I did. I did. And all of a sudden, and then I came back to the US and and something inside of me began to think about being a journalist, it began to think about being a writer. Then uh another time I was on the US national team and we competed against France and then against Germany and then against the Soviet Union. And during the Cold War, the Soviet, that was the second biggest meet, track meet outside the Olympics. And it's worldwide television and enormous, enormous pressure. And I recalled after that, I wanted, I realized, especially visiting Paris, that I wanted to go to school overseas. I wanted to get away from America. And there they asked me to write an article in L'Equipe, which is a French sports newspaper. And I eventually became a correspondent for L'Equipe in writing in French very poorly, but I could do it pretty much. So it was athletics that led me out into the world. And the final part of that is that what really uh, uh, catapulted me, if you will, was yeah. that um, in the 1972 uh, Olympic trials, I, I made a mistake in the finals of the 1500 meters and I I should have, you know, I could have been a could have been a contender as they say as the movie goes now. And so I went from I should have won, I didn't, I made a big mis tactical error. And so uh it's a real the timeline various journalists 
asked me if I would go to cover the Olympics with them because I knew foreign athletes and I could help them. And so we went to Munich. And in Munich, um, in, 19, in 1972 for the world, uh, for, the, for the Olympics there, the Palestinians snaked into the, the, the US, or excuse me, the Olympic village and murdered, I think 11, I forget the exact number now, uh, Israeli athletes. And all of all of a sudden, the world in which I live of, of warmth and the essence of excellence and the essence of, of, of playing fair because you can't cheat, you can't take drugs, although that was starting, that was starting to come in, that very wholesome world of track and field, which my father really approved of when I was a boy, all of a sudden became part of a very, very dark world of international politics. Mm. And I remember um, working for Time Magazine and Sports Illustrated, the two mag important magazines then as just as, as a helper, if you will, and watching these men work on deadlines. And all of a sudden, it was, I realized that the world was far different and that I than I had lived than what I imagined or thought of because World War II or any other war is that is something you watch on television. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden I changed and I realized I didn't want to be involved in the world of sports anymore, but in the world of real politics. And so that's what I had done. I'm, I'm skipping around a bit, but I had I had already I had been in the army. I was drafted in the army. And then I using when I finished, I wanted to go to graduate school in Paris, mm -hmm. which I did, and that's where I. And it was just after being on the U.S. national teams, that's where I I began the work as, with the, uh, um, L'Equipe. But now, uh, this is two years later or a year later, after I, I didn't make the team and I worked for, these American Time and and, Sports Illustrated. I realized I wanted to go back to Paris to finish school, but I didn't want to go to the Sorbonne and study literature anymore. I wanted to go to the Institute of Political Studies, which is far more, mm -hmm. far more uh, rigid and it was harder to get into. But it was the the it was the destruction of this beautiful, in my mind, life of the honesty, purity, wholesomeness and the tension and the and the um, the intensity of that life that oh. propelled me into becoming a foreign correspondent. So and, at that moment, you were a young American athlete with yes. all those experiences abroad right. that you just described. And then you go to Paris and then you get into the academia to study things more related to politics and you have, as you said, already decided to shift or to change a little bit your life. Um, from there, when did you decide to travel to the Middle East for the first time? Or if there, that was a decision or if it just happened? Uh, all travel, outside of being a journalist, all travel is, in my view, escape and pursuit in equal parts. You're looking for something 
and you're looking to escape something, even if escape the drudgery of your job to go on vacation for a week, let's say. It's it's equal. And what I didn't discuss initially with you was the trauma of, in my mind, of not making the Olympic team when I was under a lot of pressure from my hometown, my family, uh, the public, to do that because I had that reputation. I, I, I left the country to hitchhike through Europe. I wanted to get away. And it was while, I, and I hitchhiked down from, to Spain and on, to the Mediterranean. And I looked across the water and I said, I haven't gone far enough. I want to know what's on the other side. And I crossed over in a small boat, not unlike years later, the type of boats I would see in the Amazon uh, when I was working <laughs> down there. In other words, very low in the water, not a not a cruise ship or anything remotely like that, hmm. to, to Morocco and into the world of Islam. And I began to hear the word inshallah, Arabic for God willing. And I said, they're just like, we are just like I used the only people I ever heard say God willing was in my assembly as a boy. We didn't use the word church in our God willing. And I was intrigued by this. And so it was I I hitchhiked across North Africa to uh, eventually making my way to uh, to Istanbul. And I remember going to a mosque there curious about this new this new this new world this new faith maybe to replace the one that had failed me because i didn't feel that i succeeded as an athlete because i had so much i had done so much and people expected me to do what i i had not done mm-hmm. and so i i remember thing i remember in istanbul going to a mosque and saying i no trying to pray and i couldn't do it didn't mean anything didn't feel anything. I said, I have to go further east. Why? I don't know. I had to go. I had to go further east. Instinct, maybe. I don't know. Instinct. I have to do that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when I, I, then I, then to skip ahead, when I went, finished, finally finished school in Paris, I was with a group of, of, uh, about six of us, all from different countries who are in, in the same program at the, at the Institute of Political Studies. And we sat in a cafe in Paris and like every other young person in the world who's 25, 26, 22, three, we're all in our 20s. What are you going to do next? One was going to be a banker. One was going to be a journalist. One was going to work in it for Sotheby's, the art, the art uh, auctioneer, I remember. And I just said, I'm going to, I want to go to Afghanistan. And to this day, I don't know where that came from. I honestly do not know. I'm sure there were, there were different. I would hear about Afghanistan and Paris, and one thing that was happened during and but other countries. But what I also heard in Europe from just from living there a lot or traveling a lot as an athlete there, but also as a, as now as a student, so you could buy an old car, uh, and if you had money and you're older or you're in the business of doing this, you could buy a Mercedes, drive that car across Asia and sell it for a profit and use the money to fly home. We would, I would hear these stories. And, and this was the era of 
the hippie trail, and this is before what I call the black flag of radical Islam descended on Asia. This is before Khomeini came to power in Iran. So the road was open and the goal was to seek nirvana in Kathmandu or on the beaches of Goa, which was, which was sex, drugs, rock and roll in one sense, whereas Kathmandu was uh, nirvana in a, in a different way. And this is, <clears throat> this is also the beginning of what was later called the hippie trail. Uh, if any of you, anybody has seen the movie Midnight Express, hmm. uh, which is took place in the, what's called the pudding shop in Istanbul. I used to spend a lot of time there or well, enough time because um, that was the like the, the the station, the last point in Europe before Asia. And Asia was romantic then. And it was later called the Hippie Trail. And then there was a fellow named Billy Billy Hayes, who I think is still alive, who was captured by for trafficking uh, marijuana or hashish, probably, and spent 10 years in prison, from which came that movie. But so what I did was, uh, um, when I was in Paris, I called my, I, I ran on the European circuit to earn a track circuit to earn a little bit of money. And I called my parents. And to this day, my brother and I do not know why. My mother said yes. And I said, I wanted to buy an old car and travel across Asia and would my younger brother like to join me and so we did that and um it's it seems to when I tell the story or give talks about journalists and such this is what captivates people and they talk about it <laughs> and they still do especially older guys um yeah I went with my younger brother and it took and we had two car accidents and I ran out of money pretty much uh, by the time we reached the Afghan uh, Iranian border. And so we, we made, I remember standing on the border and saying, there was something, there was something inside of me that, that was, this is it. This is the land I'm looking for. And um, I mean, I said other things there also, but there was something deep inside of me that was very moving there and that drew me there we had enough money. We made our way to Kabul, and um, where eventually uh, my brother got thrown in jail because his visa ran out, and I had to sell the car in the Khyber Pass for the romance of it all for three hundred dollars, and mm -hmm. use that money to put my brother on a hippie bus to come back. And I took it later when I knew that he was okay. That I took it the most inexpensive way back was by. By via the Soviet Union, where they, my bag, one of my bags, part of my bags disappeared because they thought I was a drug trafficker because I had a beard and long hair. But I also wore a tie and I had a long uh, uh, wolf coat, full length wolf coat that I bought for twelve dollars in the in the bazaar. I love that coat. Too bad I don't have it anymore. And so, uh, by then I was totally committed to a a, a life in professional life and politics. And so drawing on my athletic background and my name, I got a job working in the US Senate as an aide to the Senator from Washington state, one of the senators. And then uh, I was home in Vancouver with my parents watching the Soviet tanks roll into Kabul. And I said to myself, I have to return. And not as having any- 
already knew that your return would be I'm returning. All I knew I'm returning. Okay. I'm going back. I have to go back. Mm -hmm. And I had a friend, still a friend, who had was worked he had worked on we'd worked in the Senate together. Now he had a small business working for it's even funny to use the term today, uh these new technology magazines that were just starting. And because the, the technology then was so uh simplistic in comparison of course to what we have today and what he had was a small booklet that listed all the bureaus of all the newspapers in washington and i was familiar with how journalists worked in washington because they would come to our office in the senate and i and i i realized the power that they had because the senator was kind of we had to really be nice to this one fellow because he was more a person on the left and my senator with the senator i worked for was seen as conservative and just the tension there, it was it was fascinating. And so what I did was I called every single major newspaper that had a bureau in Washington. And the one that was most receptive was Rolling Stone. And the, they were Rolling Stone. And the okay. and the fellow there, I don't recall his name, he was well known and during that period. And he treated me with respect in all, in all seriousness. And then I went to the Washington Post and the woman there who still works there <laughs> uh, and I wore a suit and she, and she didn't like the Senate I worked for. And she said, how do I know you don't work for the CIA? And I, what? And I didn't like her, but I liked, I liked the, some, the men I met, they were terrific. And they too were very respectful and willing to give me a chance. At the same time, I wanted to move to New York. My father is from this area. Um, I used to come here as a boy. I was drawn to it. And I called the New York Times 12 times. And finally, a woman took my, on the foreign desk, took my, took my call. You insist and you got Came it. up there. And some, one of the fellows had, uh, it knew me from reading the New York Times about track. And so with my track background and with no journalism experience, none, uh, I mean, serious journalism experience, none whatsoever. Um, the uh, Ultimately, the deputy foreign editor, who is a friend, a close friend today, said, how do we know that we could, oh, the foreign editor and him both said, how do we know that we can trust you? And I made reference to... Uh, a quote from Camus, the French writer, who talked about all he learned about morality, he learned from playing football as a boy. I used the athletic analogy. And that sealed it. And the next night, next day, they gave me a check for $500, said I could have the, spend the best night of my life in New York, used it to apply to a plane ticket to Afghanistan, went with a friend to watch the movie Chariots of Fire, and the next day flew to Paris, uh, to go to the New York Times Bureau, picked up a message from the course, the correspondent, only one of them at the time covering all of South Asia, um, and met another journalist pacing the walls, be, pacing the floor, waiting for an airplane that CBS was hiring because Anwar Sadat, the president of, of Egypt, had just been assassinated. And did I did not know the world I was just about to enter. And so from there, I... I flew to flew to Pakistan 
and uh, I knew I knew through an Australian photojournalist that I met in New York, I knew the name of a taxi driver or a yeah a taxi driver of sorts in Peshawar, Pakistan, on the Afghan-Pakistani border, and it was and then the New York Times correspondent was very good to me, and but for the romance of it all, I wanted to take a train up through the Khyber Pass, and thus began my life uh, living with the Mujahideen. And now this 40 years of, of experience in Afghanistan all began because of, when I look back on it, I think it's a combination of my religious upbringing, hmm. the athletic world I grew up in, and my desire to leave the world I grew up in and to see the world and to understand it. And I haven't looked back <laughs> since. By that time, when you were sent there after your um, decision to go there to the New York Times, the pursue for your desire, I'm not sure, and maybe your dream, your desire to go there. And once you arrived as a new reporter um, there, what, which memories do you do you have from your first stories? What you were searching for? I'm not going to ask about anything you lived in that moment. I assume you already had to talk about this many times in your life. And I also think that our listeners must read one of your um, most famous books, um, Captive. And so it's everything is there. Um so my question is only about what uh, what that event changed you changed you in your life. How this event of being there as a young journalist uh, changed you? I don't know. I don't think this is unique to America, but it's it, it, it certainly plays a role in in American culture, and I, I'm certain that everybody listening to this is aware of this part of. The culture, and that is um, to answer the first part of the question, which was hard emotionally. I realized for me to answer it, um, Patricia, and that is that um, while I grew up in a very religious environment, I also grew up in a world that was um, of men who were very proud of what they had done and in in the military. And I grew up during the time of Vietnam, and men I knew went to Vietnam, and that was, I mean, we, we talk about Iraq, we talk about Afghanistan, certainly mm -hmm. those are terrible, but the war in Vietnam, uh, the number of people killed is uh, far, far, far greater, mm -hmm. and that because of my athletic background, the Army wanted to, the mili U.S. military, this is not very well known. Mm -hmm. The U.S. military wanted to, and soldiers were couldn't walk through an airport. People would spit on spit on people and call them baby killers. It was a very very volatile time in the country, and so they wanted to show athletes in the army, in the navy, in the air force, in the Marine Corps, competing on television in any form. Mm -hmm. And so they said, if you come in the army, you will not have to go to Vietnam. 
and they wanted to use this. Most of the majority of the U.S. Olympic team during that period was in the military. Today, that would never happen. And so I was, I did not have any uh, experience that everybody, all the men in my family had. And I felt that I was, uh, I had, I was not a man. I went to Afghanistan, I realized when I was with the Mujahideen, hmm. and this is my way of coming in and answering your question, and no one has really ever asked me this. Uh, what I found was beginning with the Mujahideen in the, in the mountains in the north, where the war was against the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union was, was in MI-24 helicopter gunships, and there was no tanks on the ground or, or anything like that, but we would go, go out on, on missions and it was it was the biggest fear was to be uh was being bombed by by the gun, by the gunships and i also noticed that i felt an affinity with these men who were very religious lived on bread gritty rice and tea were incredibly strong and also prayed in front of their rifles. Something something inside of me found something very interesting and comforting and in solidarity with that in a strange way. And I kept at it and I kept at it, pushing it, working my way south into the desert of Kandahar. And there it was trench warfare. And uh, I remember the man next to me and this, I, then they, the Mujahideen I was with were uh, pinned down. The man next to me got got his hand shot. We had to get out of there. And they, they had to get me out of there to survive. And I remember, and not everybody did survive. And I think to answer your question, I was looking, I was looking for what I would call manhood to prove myself to be something that maybe I hadn't been in my father's eyes that I hadn't. And so I really, I was, I took, and I've continued to do this really took risks and ended up. Uh, and this became, and it was also for the romance of it all by traveling by camel with a rifle across the desert, sleeping in the desert to come out was incredibly exciting and incredibly romantic in a way that I had dreamed of as a boy watch, reading Lawrence of Arabia and watching that. So it's a combination of the romance of adventure and seeking seeking danger, which mm -hmm. led to um, the first article I ever wrote in my life was on the Sunday front page of the New York Times. And so was the next one. And all of a sudden I'm catapulted into the... <laughs> You know, no one had gone from, no one in America had covered the war in Afghanistan like that. And uh, so all of a sudden I went from uh, this this person who wanted to be a journalist to having his first six articles on the front and second pages of the New York Times. And so my whole life changed. And it was, uh, on one hand, it was wonderful. On the other hand, there was a certain amount of trauma involved in becoming close to these men um, who were not our enemies, but were not looked upon favorably. And I felt a kinship with them 
which carried through with the Taliban and and, and carries through to some of the work that I do today. Mm -hmm. Well, you wrote about your uh, a traumatic experience in your book that if our listeners, they, they didn't read yet, they, they should, they must, captive. And um, you have been writing about your personal experiences while working there, the trade in Afghanistan and American um, Odyssey. As I said, I'm not going to ask anything about specific related to any of those books, but um, is there anything that link all of those books? Anything that you 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 feel motivated in 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 put in words to 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 your readers, and then we come to your um, last. Um, book without borders the hakani network and the road um, to kabul the link one link is and um what's really important is when i was first went there uh with the letter and all i had was the letter of introduction from the new york times mm -hmm. um is that the the new york times correspondent there uh, based in New Delhi, who came over to came over to Islamabad in Pakistan mm -hmm. uh, because Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister, was there, and and he waited for me to come, and he took me to lunch one day, and uh, in a place called Murray, which is an old British hill station, and then he took me outside after lunch, and we were standing on a cliff in a forest looking west and and he said there lies deepest darkest afghanistan and then he turned to me and he said don't worry the story will come to you mm -hmm. and i felt myself sigh a sigh of relief i didn't know that i was nervous and what he said is the best advice I have ever received as a journalist. And it's the most important thing that I could pass on to anybody today. Well, if you, Whatever preconceived idea you have of what is happening in, in, in Gaza or what is happening in, in Eastern Ukraine uh, or any other place on earth. Uh, yes, of course you must, you have a, a sense of adventure and a sense of uh, the integrity to uh, do what is right, to tell the truth. But you're also going to have a preconceived notion of what you're going, what it's going to be like there. And you must discard that entirely when you get there, because the only way you're going to find out the truth is to simply be open to what presents itself in, to you. Not You can go look for something, but what you're looking for is not, what you're going to find you're going to find something else that's totally unexpected and it's oh, it wow. is that has uh and what i would to answer and to carry that further is that in uh the day after 9 11 i i got hired by cbs and as there i would become their afghanistan pakistan al-qaeda analyst, commentator, correspondent. And 
during this time, I I was I was 2006. I, I had written an article on on the side, uh, an academic article for the Army War College on the, uh, the rise and present state of what we call Islamic fundamentalism, and uh, I realized as I did research on that two things: one that everybody in America considered the Taliban their enemy but I didn't see any difference between them and the Mujahideen. And then I realized I was really separate in this and I had to be very careful. Uh, I did give one interview to a television station and my father got very upset at me for take, being almost in his words, anti-American because I said, we created this and no one seems, no one, no one in the media, now I don't care who you are, has the courage to come out and say that we created what with our, with our allies and our efforts to fight the Soviet Union or Soviet communism, we create we created what has become the Taliban. This and at the same time, I got a phone call or an email, forgive me, from the book division, uh, well, New York Times Books, and asked me to come back. And I came back to New York and we had breakfast in a diner. And he said, the tribal areas of Pakistan, meaning due east across uh where it's the headquarters of Al Qaeda and the Taliban. The tribal areas are like a blank space on the map. It's clear that the CIA does not know where bin Laden is hiding. Can you go there? You lived there before. You were there in the 1980s. No one knows this area. You do. Will you go? And I said, yes. Because deep inside of me, I thought, if I could get to the Akhanis again, the Akhanis were the people I'd lived with in the, in the 1980s the first time. If I can find Jalal Adin, I could find out about bin Laden. I didn't tell people that. That sounds so incredibly arrogant. But I say that because back then, what I realized much years later was that the uh, former Egyptian army major who came to live with us for two weeks, who everybody hated, all the Afghans couldn't stand him, but it was so arrogant as he paraded around our the compound where we where we lived in an old bombed out Adobe uh, compound, um, was I realized many years later because I certainly didn't know anything about this when I was there, the very beginnings of Al Qaeda. And so I by then by nine eleven I knew what Al Qaeda was, and so I thought if I could get to uh, Jalal al-Din again, I could find out about Bin Laden. And so with that armed with the, that the, the the contract New York Times and going against my boss, the foreign editor of CBS, who said, I know you want this. Give me, but I want I want the names of three people in Washington I can call if anything happens. And I was also a, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Council at the time in New York. And I was, and the 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 president asked me the very same questions. They saw things that I didn't see, and so I returned to the mountains, uh, where I had, as I had lived when I was a very young when I was you know I was a very young man, and I found that I loved it. I wanted the adventure again. I wanted to also that that the fact that I hadn't done 
lived up to what my father had been and others men I knew and men I'd grown up with was still maybe inside of me because I was, I was, as my editor said it, borderline reckless. I took enormous risks. I went with the Taliban four times and every time they kept their word until they didn't. And it was in that It was in that prison cell um, where I fought my own war, and the war that I, I that I had been looking for, and and um, I remember one night, the night that they. Um, I'm going to be a wreck for three days now. It's always I get this way. No, it's all right. I'm, I'm halfway there, Patricia. But halfway. we don't have to. I think, as I said, it's all in the book, and uh, you already what if you already been through through this. So it's all about anything you want to share. Um, you know the difference between me and. People like Jim Foley and Stephen Salov and Peter Kasig and Alan Hemming and Englishman. So with me, they put the knife back. Um, so I have an obligation to to do what I can to. So I work and write and very much involved in the hostage world. Uh-huh. But um, the uh, I remember once... No, I don't know what to say, uh, except um, I found what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Is there anything? Let's just say that. I found what I was. That goes back to what Mike Kaufman, my mentor, wonderful man. Everybody should have a mentor. He or she will come to you. Don't worry about it. They will appear and you will know who's who's the right one. Um. I didn't go looking for that, what came to me. Just as, just as last October, when I returned to Afghanistan to meet with Jalaluddin's son, the man I lived with years ago, his son, Sirajuddin, the military commander of the Taliban. I went there at an invitation of, because of my last book about the Akhani's. And again, I had no idea what was going to happen, but what I wasn't looking for happened and another world opened up at my age at, in a way that is as exciting, if not more so, but not necessarily. It is dangerous in the fact that Afghanistan is not is not a safe place, even though they say it is. Um, it's delicate, but as anything, if not more exciting and important and necessary than I've ever done. And it came to me unexpected. I never went there expecting anything like that. And again, the door opened and this wonderful opportunity came to me. So the point is, when you get the assignment, when the opportunity comes, go. You have, the world is the world is open to you. 
and you will be guided and you will love every minute of it. Well, you won't love every minute of it, but in the end, you will be so grateful and so happy that you did it. Jerry, you are a reference in our field. Um, if you could give one advice for foreign journalists that are listening to us now, um, there are many students of journalists that also um, follow our, our program. Anything that they might listen from you that you might consider important for them to listen um, regarding um, our profession and those who want, or those who feel like pursuing um, this career? Yes, uh, I will say a few things. Number one, trust yourself, mm -hmm. listen to yourself. The I was once in on a National Geographic assignment in the Amazon, and I made reference to it as part of the Amazon. I had to travel. It was a National Geographic assignment to travel the length of the Amazon, and I remember uh, taking a run on a river going up into the Andes. We stopped at a at a uh, mission, a Catholic mission, mm -hmm. and I asked the priest. They're invariably from Europe. It was very interesting. They were all from Europe. All the priests I met. Uh, and I asked, what's the name of the tribe here? And he told me the name. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you belong to a tribe too, the tribe of journalists. And for the first time, I felt I belonged somewhere. I belong. I'm part of the tribe of journalists. And so journalists are a tribe. We're all, we all understand one another. We all have our own ambitions. We all have our own desires. Yeah, one very dangerous part of being part of a tribe is the fear of alienating someone in the tribe, the fear of going alone, the fear of really listening to yourself. And so you must, I believe, it, it, by trusting yourself, find the the true freedom of the press, the true freedom that we all talk about lies within you. And you must be willing to go alone and to follow your own path, to listen to your to your instincts against those who would say, no, this is what we need to do for whatever reason. And often it, it's the it's the editor back in in the capital that you where you're from, or the in my case it was the foreign editor at CBS or someone like that. You're going to go against people, but you must trust yourself. And even though you belong to a tribe that you're very happy to, to be belong to, know the true freedom, freedom of the press is within you. Jerry Van Dyke, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure, an honor to have. We spoke for one hour to have one hour of your time to share with us and to have this opportunity to learn from you as well. So I have no words to express my gratitude and I believe all of our listeners, they might feel the same. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Goodbye, Patricia. <laughs>